Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. PJ's back tomorrow and uh, sitting in the seat here this morning till midday. It's Gareth O'Callaghan. Great to be back with you. I hope you're well and I hope you've all made that transition from uh, summer, if that's what you could call it, into the autumn. It's certainly a, a, a mucky old day outside our window here, so uh, hopefully you don't have too much to do on the roads. Nice to have your company this morning with you for the next three hours. Lots to talk about and we would love to hear your opinions on lots of the topics. 083 96, 96, 96. And if you have your own topic, uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. Give us a call on that. And uh, as I say, lots happening between now and 12. couple of stories that caught my eye this morning. A record-breaking number of people tuning in to watch Patrick Keelty take the helm of the Late Late Show on Friday night. Uh, PJ was talking about this yesterday. Keelty presented the Late Late Show for the first time. Wait till you hear this. Eagerly anticipated show record, recorded a peak audience of 934,000 uh, with an average audience. That would be the audience throughout the show of 830,000. Uh, the player, which I regularly use, the RTE player, had 158,000 streams of Friday night's show, making it the strongest ever Late Late Show opening on the RTE player. So it just goes to show, um, as John Dowling says in the Irish Independent this morning, that the show itself is still bigger than any one brand name and looks set to have a new life of its own. That's certainly the case as well. And uh, a picture, I, I would have thought Patrick Keelty jumped on a plane on Saturday morning and headed home to Cat Dealey and to his two boys. But no, he's still here. And there's a picture of him there in the Irish Times on page three this morning with Minister Catherine Martin. ITIC Chief Executive, that's Irish Tourism Executive, uh, Owen O'Mara Walsh. Patrick and ITIC Chairperson Elaine Fitz. Gerald Kane at the Athlone Greenway Bridge on the River Shannon. This was at the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation's Tourism Big Impact Small Footprint Conference. So he's definitely getting around and getting his foot in a few doors as well. Um, I, You know, everybody's been talking about it and I suppose it, it kind of sets the bar a little bit higher. Everybody's wondering now what he's going to do to open the show with next Friday night. I would like to think personally that his guest list will be a little bit more imaginative and diverse, if that's not too uh, cheeky a way to put it. Uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people in the business, and not just in the business, but outside of the business, said to me over the weekend was, um, you think they would have avoided the RTE canteen, uh, which I think is, I don't know whether that's reopened as a result of a, a rodent infestation. 
That's right. As somebody said to me, could the rats be uh, deserting the sinking ship? No. Uh, I think... Uh, it, I just felt that the two Johnnies mm, wouldn't be my cup of tea. Uh, Tommy Tiernan, Hector, uh, yeah, I thought so. Uh, Mary McAleese, definitely. James McLean, a couple of people in the paper saying that it was very Northern Irish weighted on Friday night. But do you know something? It just goes to show. Everyone's talking about it, and uh, there's got to be a great show coming up next Friday, I would imagine, as well. Now, staying with RTE, uh, a media charge to replace the current TV licence fee could be set at a higher rate, the Taoiseach has indicated yesterday. I was writing about this in The Examiner last Saturday. Leo Varadkar has said the government needs to grasp the nettle on how both RTE, which is hemorrhaging funding, through lost TV licence fees and the wider media will be funded into the future. So he's been asked about this media charge, which they're saying will be collected by the revenue commissioners, which means there's no escaping it. Uh, A lot of the journalists talking to him yesterday asked him would it be set lower than the current licence fee price of 160. And the Taoiseach pointed to the fact that the TV licence hasn't increased in around 15 years. He said that it depends whether there's a change at all. That's the most fundamental decision we have to make. Whether there's going to be an ongoing household charge, like the TV licence or something like it, or whether we go for exchequer funding. But there's no perfect option here. Uh, He added that he would have concerns about an exchequer-funded model. I'm not sure what that means, but um, I don't know. I was talking about this over the weekend Uh, A media charge basically means that if you have a phone, if you have a laptop, if you have an iPad, if you have a tablet, uh, and if you have a television license at home, well, then you won't have to pay this proposed new media tax, okay? But if you don't have a television at home, so you're saying, no, I've got rid of the television or I've never had a television, uh, but I, I use my laptop, I use my phone, I can get all of the media I need in that, then you will have to pay the media tax. And there's no way around it, because if the revenue commissioners come in and start collecting the tax, well then it will be taken at source from your wages for whoever you work for, or it will be taken directly from your bank account if you refuse to pay it. So it will effectively be identical to the local property tax. Now, I'm really interested to hear your view on this. I think, first of all, uh, it will be challenged from a constitutional perspective uh, in the High Court. I know that for a fact, so that could drag on for a long time because it would then be appealed to the Supreme Court. That could drag on for five or six years. Um, What what do you think? Like, over 100,000 people are now refusing to pay their television licence fees, okay? That's causing a huge drop in revenue for RTE, something like 26 million uh, uh, recently in, in last week's figures to date since last June. Um, over 100,000 people saying, no, I won't ever pay the television licence fee again. Now, last Friday, a Dublin District Court judge, Judge Anthony Halpin, started issuing bench warrants. A bench warrant is issued if you fail to turn up in court to pay a fine or to answer a charge pressed against you. And it usually means that the Gardaí will call to your door and arrest you. You'll be taken to the Garda station and you'll be held there until the earliest sitting of the Dublin District Court. So Judge Helpin is saying, I'm not going to tolerate this. Now, this is the judge who last 
early on in the summer said, um, it's intolerable that people are being dragged up in front of me and imprisoned for not paying their television licenses. But now he has said that the tide has turned and that the numbers are so big, he's going to issue bench warrants on an ongoing basis. So I was thinking, how long would it take to bring 100,000 people to court? Okay? Say, for example, if you saw maybe, oh, throw out a figure there. Say you saw 100, 200 per week. 200 per week. 100,000 people not paying their television license. You're kind of looking here at about four or five years before you round them all up. And that's five years and they haven't paid their television license. And when you consider that the current Taoiseach, well, this is probably going to be his last budget. It's probably going to be his last tirade in terms of this media tax uh, proposal. How do you feel about it? Would you pay a media tax? Uh, Are you paying your television license as a result of the pressure you feel you're under to pay it? Because a lot of people have said to me, it's very embarrassing if the neighbours see the Gardaí calling um, and, you know, you're being taken away to the Garda station because you failed to turn up in court. Are are you not paying it? Have you just put your foot down and said, I've had enough, I don't watch RTE. As far as I'm concerned, it's out of date. It's not a style of television I want to watch anymore, so therefore I'm not going to subscribe to funding it. Let us know, okay? 083 396 96 96. That number again, 083 396 96 96. Now, Ryanair have come in for criticism yet again, and this time it's amongst Cork GAA players and fans. Uh, Mary Newman's on the phone. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well. Now, this is an extraordinary story. I suppose in the great scheme of things, it's not. But in another way, it is. It's, it's, it's a, a business taking things a little bit too far. Can you tell us the story? Yes, indeed, Gareth, I will. Um, my niece and her husband uh, travelled to Manchester with their three children last week out to see their granny and granda who are living in um, Blackpool so they regularly take the flight they fly to Manchester and then go down into Blackpool so off they went and Billy May took her hurley because she wanted to be training away while she's out there now she's 11 so I can imagine it wasn't a big size 36 hurley it was you know regular 29 child's hurley checked above in Cork airport before they went now she has taken it several times with her and there's never, ever been a problem. They've often flown to Liverpool and went via that way. So there's never been a problem. The girl in Cork Airport was really lovely. She said, look, we put it in. It goes in with the buggy. Wrap it in this little kind of a clear bag um, so that they can see what it is. Put it in with the buggy. Off it went from Cork Airport. Picked it up at the other end, happy out. She had it for the week. She was outside showing all the granny and granddad's neighbours and she'd be training outside in the green plane hurling and she'd be hitting the ball and lovely. So they were coming home yesterday and they were checking in at Manchester Airport. They checked in, the three children, the mum and dad, folded down the buggy and went to put the hurley in. And the girl, I think it was a girl, said, what's this? So they explained that was, you know, it was wrapped up. (laughs) Yeah. So they explained. So then a second guy came over and 
Aoife, my niece, explained that, you know, that's used for, it's an Irish game, it's hurling, and we brought it out last week, and we were told in Cork Airport to wrap it like this, and to go into the over, like, it's not, they weren't looking to take it on the aircraft, because a lot of people have been kind of commenting, why would you take a hurley onto a plane? They were putting it into the over, oversized yeah. baggage with the buggy, with the buggy. Um, oh no, we can't, uh, that's 60 euros, 60 euros, so... Oh, I looked at them and he said, 60 euros. Oh, yeah, the charge. So they wanted 60 euros for the child's Harley. That's, you know, 20 euros maybe for the Harley. But, you know, you know, children, especially when they love the game, and she, she's yeah. obsessed with Camogie. That's her Harley. It's her, as she said herself, her best Harley. She has about 20 more of them, I'd say. But, like, you know, this is the Harley that she loves, plays with. She has her grip in it, everything. So they wanted, so they were, so... But then they came, they went away. Um, Paul asked to see, speak to a supervisor. They said, oh no, the supervisor was in a meeting. So then they came back and um, they started bartering then, they wanted 35.99. So they went from 60 to 35.99. So he said, <laughs> yeah. So like, on a matter of principle of anything else, like no way would they give it to them. Like, so they wouldn't take it. So this was going on now for nearly an hour. Mm. So, um, Eventually, they said, well, it's not going on. So they took us. So Paul asked them for, you know, again, speak to somebody. And your man said, no, I'm in charge. So he asked for his name. So he gave him his first name, his Christian name. He wouldn't give him his surname. So they were keeping the Hurley. So they asked for, you know, some kind of a receipt to say, like, they had kept the Hurley. Because Paul said, I want it back. And I want it delivered to my house. I'll get this back. So they've emailed Ryanair. I don't think they got any response yet. Typical, um, yeah. A lot of people had seen, yeah, typical. But Fimber had it on his Twitter. And as you know, Fimber has a lot of Twitter followers too, being one of the, your, I suppose, GA correspondents. Yeah. I suppose everybody follows. So it got massive traction. And they, Ryanair, contacted him and asked him for the flight number, the booking and booking number and an email address. He sent them on. They came back, said, give us a phone number. He gave them his phone number. Now, at this stage, they were up in the air flying, so he gave them his own phone number. So a gentleman from Ryanair rang him and spoke to him for a minute or two and said, asked him for the details again, gave them, I'll be back to you in 20 minutes. That was yesterday, about five past three. So that's a long 20 minutes because we've heard no more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have yeah. yeah. So that's Michael O'Leary now, the great Irish man. Yeah, uh, taking a hurley off an eleven-year-old child. He was they were grand taking it out from Cork, but he wants to keep it in England. Maybe he's trying to promote Camogie and hurling in Manchester. Maybe, maybe he'll get onto Manchester United. Maybe we'll have a hurling team. Maybe Michael O'Leary starting a hurling team in Manchester United, yeah. and maybe that's the first hurley that will be. Yeah in the museum there in years to come. Maybe they but thought yeah, it was... So Michael, yeah, maybe they thought it was a shillelagh. That's <laughs> but like, did you know, but did you know what the, the, the ironic thing is? There was a gentleman going on to the flight with a walking stick. Yeah. That was no problem. So yeah. I said, maybe she should have pretended it was a walking stick. <laughs> but to take it up, to see an 11-year-old child standing in front of you. Yeah. Upset. And like, uh, like uh, we had been on the phone to them because... Um, you know, because Aoife got on to me, she said, she's not on Twitter, get for much, but this is Twitter straight away. And like, 
I said, do not pay them. Yeah. And like, first of all, Paul was going to pay to, to get the child's hardly home. But in fairness to the child, she said, dad, that shouldn't be done. That's not right. But like, imagine to be looking like, it's fine. You can take it out from Cork. No problem. And the girl in Cork, she said, you know, they're lovely in Cork Airport. They're so nice. Yeah. And the girl said, there'll be no problem bringing it back. It'll go in with the buggy. Yeah. So here See, we go. I'm, I'm I'm thinking to myself the the decision the decision was presumably made by the people at the gate. The people at the gate are usually yes. the, the crew on the plane. What they do is they kind of lock the gate behind them and they all get on board and shut the door. So they're checking on mm-hmm. the passengers they're travelling with and looking after. And I'm just wondering, was there a kind of a cultural misunderstanding where they thought haven't a clue what this thing is? And as you say, maybe if she turned it upside down and pretended it was a crutch, she would have got on with it. But I'm wondering, was that the problem? And then somebody else who knew the cultural connection to Irish sport thought, no, that's only a hurley. It's it's perfectly okay to take on. But what I can't believe, first of all, is that the, the crew were allowed to make a decision like that without consulting with someone more senior, who obviously they did, who tried to contact you then after the Twitter storm. Yeah, no, I think it was when they were actually um, putting the buggy in to, you know, where you check in for yeah. the flight. You know, you fold down the buggy up of Cork Airport. Now I've seen people folding down the buggy and you just, you take it to a certain point. Yeah. And they take it from you and then you go through the gate the boarding, to the boarding gate. So it was actually before they went into the boarding gate that um, the furore started. Right. Because okay. they were outside for nearly an hour trying to sort it, and they were waiting. And this guy came out and said, "Well, he was the boss. He was in charge. Right. This famous David, whoever David in Manchester is, who has the hurley." So David went off home with the hurley. <laughs> but like, yeah. but there's the child now. Like her, like yeah. she wants her. And she was actually upset last night when they got home because obviously it caused a bit of a storm. And they and, and you're standing there with an eleven year old, a five year old, and a three year old trying yeah. to get them home. And they don't. And you have these clowns. Yeah. Yeah, but of course, I mean, the, the, the little one, the second little one, was very upset because, like, this is all going on, and like, but like, they took it out, so you can take it out, but you can't bring it back. And, uh, we, like, what, and what, what I, I said, find what I find extraordinary. Mary is is that it's not that they refuse to let her bring it on. It's that we're going to charge her sixty euro sterling. Sixty euros. And who decided? Who made the decision that they actually will drop it by twenty twenty pounds? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, that's that's like no. We yeah. I think they they followed it with sports. They would try to like say it's a sports equipment, but like if you're checking in sports equipment, grand if it's a hurling team and you have thirty hurlies gone out or yeah. and they're all wrapped up in a bag, I get it. If it's a big set of golf clubs, I get it. But it's a child with a hurley yeah. who wants to put it in with her baby brother's buggy, doing exactly what they did on the way out. Well, I've got Owen Owen Curry, who's editor of Air and Travel Magazine, Ireland's leading travel commentators, on the phone with me now. Morning to you, Owen. Uh, Good morning. This is kind of, or is it extraordinary? Is uh, I'm sure there are lots of things that that Ryanair have said. No, you can't bring that on. Yeah, it's pretty normal that anything that they don't recognise, and you're clearly dealing with some uh, somebody who just did not know what they were dealing with. It's pretty normal yes. if you don't recognise it, it doesn't go on board. The Ryanair terms and conditions are very much on their side. 
It gives them the, the option to turn down anything that will, will interfere with the loading and the unloading and the uh, cabin storage. And um, that's what we ran into here. Obviously, in Cork, it would never have happened. They know exactly what they're dealing with. They know it's not a big deal. A hurley slip, uh, slips very easily around the bags. It doesn't prevent other people getting bags up. But uh, Manchester was a different story. And just to correct your caller there, uh, it wouldn't be Manchester United that would be taking up hurling. <laughs> Michael O'Leary <laughs> is a big supporter of Manchester City. Oh. So if Manchester City turn up playing against Limerick in next year's All-Ireland, we know what happens. So if you see a couple of hurleys in the back of the net, you'll know that's where they've gone to. <laughs> that's exactly well, we know one of them as any mace hurley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, Gareth, just, can I just say there, actually, they... They wouldn't accept it at all unless it was put in cling film or in, they wanted it in a case. And they kept asking, why has she got a bat with her? And they explained it wasn't a bat. Yeah. Was like they wanted so they then told them that if you go 25 minutes down through the terminal, you'll get a wrapped in cling film. So that was a 25-minute walk down and back with three children and your little backpacks and your buggy, and then walk back another 25 minutes after you got your cling film, and then you give them your 60 euros, so like, and then you're probably late for your flight. Yeah. But like they explained, in Cork Airport, we were told to wrap it like this, this is exactly how it was wrapped coming out, would you not contact Cork Airport and ask them? And they refused to do it as well. Well, it'd probably be a lot safer if it was wrapped in cling film, don't you think so? Like it couldn't be used as a... a see, I th there's still a lot of people who, who think that Irish people, we're all still hitting each other with shillelaghs, you know, since... since yeah, we but, were yeah, but people, it wasn't you know? actually going on to, But like, who was going to, if it was, when it was wrapped, who was going to get it? Because it was going into yeah. the oversized baggage. Like it, was going to, it wasn't going on to the plane where they could hit it. But like the ironic thing is somebody said to me, you can take your lighter, you can take a lighter onto the plane. Yeah. Darren said to me yesterday, I could take my lighter and my little bottle of perfume and I yeah. could uh, do whatever. But the child couldn't put her hurley in with the buggy. Okay. So like it was going in. But like the ironic thing, if you gave them 60 euros, they didn't think that was going to cause any disruption. So it was going to be lying down on top of the buggy where the weight came out, nicely wrapped. But Michael O'Leary wanted 60 euros for as as I said, to start up his own hurling team, but like it's, it's actually <laughs> appalling. And like I would hope that Ryanair like would come to their senses with this and deliver the hurling back to the child as a gesture of nothing else. Well, there's the but, like, challenge. It's awful. Yeah, leave away this, challenge leave away this Mary. Yes. Yes, great, great and hopefully Ellie May will be back to her Harley and Glenrovers now. She'll be still there tonight anyway training because she has plenty more, but that's her. That's, that's the Harley she gets the goals with. Okay, great <laughs> to talk to you, man. Thanks a lot. So look, and thank you so much and lovely to hear you. Okay, Jared. thank you. We'll try and move it along for you. Come on, Ryanair. Manchester, sort it out for us. Great, uh, great Cork Airport Ryanair crews all the time and obviously they know the, the cultural significance of the Hurley. Um, Owen, oh, stay with me because I want to come back to you after the break and talk about a couple of similar things uh, if that's okay and if absolutely you're... I've got all the time for you that's brilliant thanks Owen um, and if you've had to leave items behind you at airports as a result of something similar to what happened this little girl Ellie May and uh, Mary's her aunt by the way and they're very upset uh, let us know what you've had to leave behind and maybe we'll chat to you maybe because uh, uh, <laughs> I, I can think of one or two things I was t that were taken off me and I was quite shocked down through the years uh, the number is 0833 96 96 96 we were talking to Mary Newman 
there, uh, her niece Ellie May had her hurley taken off her, confiscated, and uh, the staff at Ryanair in Manchester said, no, you can't take it on unless you give a 60 sterling. They objected paying. Uh, no reason was given, really, as to why she couldn't take it on, uh, because usually when they leave Cork Airport, there's no problem whatsoever. It's just popped into the buggy and put up in the overhead locker. And there's still no talk uh, about her getting her hurley back. Ryanair contacted them yesterday at 3 o'clock and said... Uh, this guy Dave said I'll be back to you in 10 minutes and um, luckily they weren't holding on the phone anyway Owen Curry, who's editor of Air and Travel Magazine Ireland's leading travel commentator is with me have you uh, you're, you're so well travelled you must have had a couple of personal experiences similar have you? Oh, lots of things I mean extraordinary things I saw uh, sweets taken off uh somebody, because the gel, there were sort of jelly sweets, and somebody decided that was a liquid. Uh, an awful lot of bottles get taken, to, uh, you know, olive oil, um, you know, uh, bottles of duty-free, things like that, that people uh, buy, then they're transferring in an airport, let's say, in America, and they f- they're found in the bag and uh, taken off. It's just, it's pretty arbitrary. It's hugely annoying for passengers, and most of it, by the way, is completely unnecessary. Um, I think decisions are left to people on the ground. Sometimes they're not very well trained for these situations, and they're the ones who do the confiscation. Um, when something is taken, you ask what happens next. Uh, it goes into a storage area. It's um, very rarely returned. They, it's, they, don't, they don't get into that business of returning baggage like you would a checked baggage uh, where their vans drive out to people's houses with the, with the bag that was lost somewhere in Heathrow uh, two days later or whatever. Uh, the interesting thing is that um, Dublin Airport occasionally auction off all the things that were confiscated and it really is beyond belief that something that would be taken off someone because they're liable to be explosive is then put up for auction at Christmas for charity. Uh, it really is uh, the, one of the most maddening aspects of the aviation industry is the arbitrary uh, confiscation of things off passengers. Now, the line air situation is a little bit different. They do have a very uh, strict policy. People, uh, if, unless your bag fits in a sizer, particularly those who haven't paid for priority boarding, they have a, a standard charge of about 60 uh, euro, which uh, they impose on the gate. And that's an ins- that means that it's, it's a higher charge than people who check in online. And it's to prevent people just chanting their arm. And what happened with the Hurley, by the sound of it, was it was regarded as, uh, they, they went through a list, there's not, no Hurleys on the list, and they charged what they would charge for a set of golf clubs, I think. Um, Reiner doesn't like extra things like golf clubs. I was did a public forum with Michael O'Leary once, and somebody put up their hand and said, uh, I really resent having to pay for my golf clubs when I go down to Spain. And when Michael O'Leary's answer was, fly with Aer Lingus. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want your golf clubs, and we don't want you as a customer. So, really, um, it, you know, you got to, it's pretty pretty rough, Garrett, but you got to admire it as an attitude. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. And I believe cream cakes have been banned now as well, so... Uh, how does the bowl of shamrock get through? <laughs> just, Paul is saying, does it go in the diplomatic bag? This is the one that's presented to the United States president. Right. <laughs> the shamrock actually is a bigger issue because under the US Department of Agriculture, you're not allowed to import shamrock. 
So it becomes, it did uh, a couple of years ago, there was a major um, diplomatic intervention uh, to prevent the Department of Agriculture stopping it coming through. Um, there, usually you would expect uh, gifts that are given to uh, presidents and ministers of state and whatever to get the, uh, above the annoyances uh, that dog the rest of us but occasionally it does happen to them too yeah I would have thought the drugs enforcement agency would be more interested <laughs> in it you've been smoking I, the shamrock again <laughs> I wear it proudly now, Dermot's on the phone hi Dermot How's it going? I'm just, you know, when I heard of your story, I, I'm still laughing. Tell us, you had a bit of a, a cheesy run-in with Ryanair, hadn't you? Uh, yeah, I was in France, and I liked my cheese, and I bought, I don't know, a few kilos of uh, camembert, you know, the round mm-hmm. packs. And uh, when I got to the airport, it was in my hand luggage. They said, no, nah, you can't take that, you know. You have to put it in the... Uh, main luggage. Well, A, I didn't have another case of me, and B, I wasn't going to pay 60 euros for uh, putting uh, a few um, camemberts into the suitcase. So they, then they started saying it might be an explosive. So I said, well, I ate one, and then they still wouldn't let me on. And being able to tell, being able to speak French, I was able to tell them, well, what do you expect from a communist country like France? <laughs> you know. So, uh, But the problem I find generally is The Ryanair staff outside of Ireland are very narky. They're definitely not on the same wavelength. Yeah. They, they're sticklers for tiny regulations. It, it's the difference leaving Ireland compared to when you're in other countries is is this huge difference. I don't know who's training the outside Ryanair staff, but that's where a lot of the problems seem to in my opinion, lie. Owen, from your experience, would you agree with it, Dermot? It's very simple, Garrett. Uh, people in Ireland are directly employed by Ryanair. Uh, in um, airports all over the Europe, they are contractors. They're a local subcontractor. They tend not to be enormously well paid. The people who have the contract are forever fighting with Ryanair over uh, the Ryanair wants better, uh, better terms in terms of finance and everything from them. Narkiness feeds all the way down through the system, as anyone who has ever encountered the beast of Girona uh, will, this large lady who terrorizes Ryanair passengers returning home uh, from Girona Airport just north of Barcelona. <laughs> There are characters that I've met on several occasions throughout Europe, and you would not cross them. But it, it, to answer the, you know, as Dermot points out, it says they are narkier. There is a reason. They're not directing Ryanair employees. Yeah. And sometimes uh, the contract goes from from one of the service companies to another. And uh, the training uh, is rudimentary if it exists at all. Mm. Well, I'll never look at camembert cheese in the same way again. I must have a look at it, actually, in the supermarket. Dermot is saying that they thought it might be plastic explosives rather than cheese. I have come across some cam- uh, camembert which co- possibly could be uh, <laughs> listed as a weapon uh, under some some of the uh, military uh, inventories. But uh, no, um, the camembert would be quite unusual. They tend um, it, it, it would go by weight. They don't. They don't generically just stop uh, foodstuffs coming on board but you've got to remember a lot of countries, European Union tends to be fine but if you're flying outside of the European Union to Morocco, Turkey places like that, there's a whole new set of uh, regulations that kick in 
that are imposed by the Department of Agriculture. And obviously, they, one of the um, people would be very familiar with the pre-clearance we have in Dublin Airport. It's a magnificent, Shannon, it's a magnificent uh, facility. You get through uh, your customs, with your, with your, your immigration and your customs. But the bit that people forget is you're also going through the Department of Agriculture. Their job is to stop any unsuspecting uh, cheese uh, being, put, being brought uh, even into the gate, down as far as the gate in Dublin. In, in the airport and interestingly enough uh, something that surprised me greatly there's a lounge which uh, business class customers use 51st and Green in Dublin airport mm-hmm. and it's the other side of the US immigration but there's certain food they can't serve there because they're technically uh, under the remit of the US Department of Agriculture I never thought of that. Yeah. Well, uh, what I loved about Dermot's uh, cheese experience was that when they said to him they were afraid that it might be plastic explosives, he opened the camembert and ate it in front of them. <laughs> Owen, great to I, chat to you. I, I, always a pleasure, Gareth. Okay. Okay. Likewise, thank you. Owen Corrie there, editor of Air and Travel magazine. Wouldn't you love to have been there, like just standing there when he just unwrapped the camembert and said, so you think it's explosives? Um, nom, 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 nom. It's Gareth O'Callaghan with you till midday today. PJ back with you tomorrow. Lots of comments coming in. I'll get round to reading um, uh, some very funny comments and some very serious comments about Ryanair as well. Uh, somebody remarking, I, I wouldn't imagine Michael O'Leary flies Ryanair. Well, he does. And I've seen him in the queue, in the queue, not jumping the queue. And a friend of mine was flying back from Stansted a couple of years back with Ryanair. And he was sitting down the back of the plane and the seat beside him was empty middle seat and along came Michael O'Leary threw his bag up into the overhead locker and said uh, excuse me and that was it and the guy said "Um, I thought you would have flown first class he says we don't have first class on Ryanair he said everyone's the same and uh, he 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 said he regaled him for about an hour and 20 minutes with the most wonderful conversation he really is a great conversationalist but he said to him he said there's a number of myths he said about me and about Ryanair number one myth he said is that people think I have a taxi plate that I put on my car so I can drive down the dual carriageway in the bus lane first thing in the morning to get to Dublin airport and my office early that's a myth but if they want to believe it that's fine I'm not a taxi driver uh, and there were so many other stories as well. Well, we get around to reading some of your comments as well. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Coach96FM. Welcome back. Some months ago, we spoke to Dee about surgery she had abroad as part of the Treatment Abroad Scheme. Most people are aware of it, funded by the HSE. But things are not quite working out to plan since her return home. Here's some of the original conversation Dee had with Joe O'Shea from her hospital in Spain. You had an operation done on your knee yesterday, was it? Yesterday, yeah. Right. And, and tell us what... <laughs> no, what, did, what it did wasn't you... major surgery. Right, yeah. <laughs> it was a um, keyhole. I had to have both sides of the cartilage repaired and my patella. <laughs> but he said everything went very well and I could go home. Okay, that's fantastic. And how did you end up getting that procedure done in Spain? Thanks to PJ Coogan. I heard him on the radio about it. (laughs) And this is the Healthcare Abroad Scheme, isn't it? Healthcare Abroad, yes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but under the scheme, if you're here in Ireland and you're waiting for a procedure, and it's going to be a while, you can apply to to get this uh, procedure like this done in a place like Denia in Spain. And, And what happens then? After I heard PJ, I googled it. 
I got mm-hmm. the number for healthcare abroad, rung them. They sent me an application form. I filled it out and they did the rest. Yeah. Until I go in yesterday and I'm going home today. What was the issue with okay. getting the treatment here in Ireland? I was waiting two years to see a surgeon. And then when I did see him, he said, hmm. He said, we won't be doing the surgery. Uh, your weight. Of course. Oh, he went into a rant by why didn't I keep exercising. And I said, I couldn't, I was in too much pain. Yeah. Yeah, you'd had an injury. You'd first, Fell down the stairs. Yeah, so your mobility yeah. has gone right away. You oh, put on, you put on a bit of weight. That counted against you then from getting the treatment or getting the treatment you needed. Yeah, but they had no problem here. Right. Yeah. And what's the experience been like for you? How are they treating you in the so, hospital? Absolutely can't do enough for you. What about that? You took a loan out from the credit union. When well, I come back, I have to pay the loan yeah. until the HSC pays. But then you're refunded all the money you have paid. Right. It could take up 14, six weeks for the HSE to pay it. Yes. But I knew that and I'm, I'm quite happy with that. As I know, I'm going to get all the money back. Ah, but there's the twist in the tale. That's Joe O'Shea there talking to D. A uh, few months ago now, isn't it? D, is it five months? Yeah, back in April. And have you got the money in the pocket? No. Oh, God. And 22 weeks tomorrow. Wow. Uh, what are the credit unions saying to you? Are they understanding? Are they? Oh, they're great. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they gave me money to keep me going because otherwise I couldn't because I'm on disability. Yeah, and I'm struggling to pay it. Like they are amazing, so, particularly in the fantastic. you know in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. So when where 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 have you gone to? Who have you tried to contact in the? Everyone. Yeah, <laughs> I rung the HS, but they rung me about eight weeks ago saying that they had the wrong IBAN number. So I got, I gave them the right one and all was fine. And then I get a phone call. Oh, I rung them last week. And the girl on the phone said, um, oh, I have a look there and now I'll ring you back. And she did in 20 minutes, she rung me back. And she said, look, I found your application. It's, it was on the bottom of the pile. Oh. But I'm at, I put her up on the top now. So I said, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> so she said, that's on the manager's desk. So she has to sign that and then it has to go onto account. So that could take another two to three weeks. And they're going, is she for real? <laughs> so. uh, and um, how, like, what, has there been regular contact from them since you, you no. came home from Spain? No. No. You come back from Spain, everything is wonderful over there. And I could not, they, uh, oh my God, they were amazing. You come back here then, there's no physio for you. There's, there's nothing, nothing in place for you when you come back. If you want physio, you have to go and get it yourself. Yeah. Because you're not effectively, you're not in the system, isn't that no. the case? Yeah. But they should have that for us. But if you apply to the HSE then for physio, you could be waiting months. But this is something I can't understand because the HSE agreed to refund you. Yeah. And to pay for the treatment. And yeah. well, if they're going to pay for the treatment, it makes sense, doesn't it, that they're going to help with the follow-up treatment and the exactly. physio, etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And did you know that that wasn't part of the plan? No, I was told I'd have the money back between six and eight weeks. And when I went to the credit union, they said, look, it could take up to 14, but we'll definitely get it in 14. And here we are, 22 weeks down the line, and still no money. So, have they given you a date? Do you think the money will come through? They rung yesterday and said they were having a problem putting it into my account. Suddenly. (laughs) Are they they actually physically carrying it? Maybe the bad weather is is sort of setting them back a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So he said, would you uh, agree to receiving a cheque? And I said, of course I would. <laughs> I said, yeah. please, send it today. He said, yeah. well, it could take a bit. Oh, it might probably be the end of the week or maybe the start of next week. Hello? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and it, it, blow up and it'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> it could be the end of the month because, you know, checks tend to be sort of signed know, off towards know, the end of the month. You never know. Yeah. So I just but, want people who are going out to realise I had planned on being able to pay this loan for 14 weeks, but, I mean, I'm re- I was struggling the last few month, weeks only for the credit union helping me out. And uh, just, you, you were talking to Joe there about, well, he talked to you there when you were in hospital in Spain. Yeah. How, how different are hospitals in Spain, oh, the hospital wow. you were in to where we are here? Oh, uh, ours are dumps compared to us. I'm sorry for saying that, but they are. Yeah. They, these hospitals, they built specifically just for these surgeries. There's no accidents, emergency there or anything. It's just for surgeries. And it's extraordinary to think that 30 years ago, Spain was probably, along with Portugal, <laughs> one of the poorest countries in, yeah. in the EU. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's extraordinary. Well, D, we'll keep in touch with you. I'm sure PJ will sure. give you a call in a couple of weeks to see if you got no, the check. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, take it straight to the bank. Credit union. <laughs> oh, credit union, yeah. Great to talk to you. And uh, by the way, you're, you're feeling well and everything after the surgery. Oh, yeah. fantastic. I that's mean, great. for the first time in two years, I'm pain free. That's absolutely wonderful. Delighted. Yeah. Thanks, Dee. T- take Thank care. Thank you, Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, that's extraordinary because I remember I was working in Spain back in the 1980s, late 80s, and uh, it was just an extraordinary place. It, it was... Um, you were humbled by its poverty and when you had to go to any of the clinics they were usually English speaking clinics run by English doctors and Spanish doctors but when you look at the hospitals now particularly these specialised hospitals that they have for very particular types of surgery and treatment it's extraordinary and it's almost like a reverse situation when you look at the conditions that our wonderful medical staff have got to work in as a result of just lack of funding, lack of interest by the people up there. And then you've got these tranches of middle management who, you know, if if you could kind of move them aside slightly, the money would go to the places it's meant to go to and there'd be much more of it. I think that's the whole argument for years. Uh, Speaking of uh, medical topics, um, just got news yesterday that there has been an outbreak of the potentially lethal CPE superbug here in uh, one of the hospitals in Cork. Now, it's not the first time, by the way. CPE, it's an unusual name. It's Carbapanamese producing Enterobacterales. And it's regarded as the most dangerous superbug because it's completely resistant to almost all antibiotics. So uh, I have heard, and if we can get confirmation from CUH, uh, I heard from a reliable source that one of the wards has been quarantined and shut off there. So we would just like, for the benefit of those who might be visiting staff or visit, should I say visiting patients and, and whatever in CUH, if perhaps they could let us know if that's the case. But uh, I was told by a reliable source in CUH that uh, that is the case. CPE has broken out there in one of the wards. Welcome back. This is the second hour. It's Gareth O'Callaghan for PJ, who's back tomorrow. Great to have your company uh, this morning. Now, we opened the show talking about this new universal media tax, which is being proposed to replace the RTE television license. And lots of comments on it. RTE, Maeve says, are talking about the high audience figures for the Late Late Show on Friday. I tuned in for the first time in a long time just out of curiosity. I was not impressed. We have enough American and imitation American stuff on television. What is RTE for? I didn't like the new logo either. 
I thought it was a bit retro. I thought it was quite funky, actually. Uh, I do understand it was very stressful for Patrick Healty, and he seems like a nice person, but the only thing of any substance was Mary McAleese, and all my children feel the same way, too. I would agree with you. Tom says, as it stands, a bank cannot just take money out of your account for this new charge. The government could change the law to make the banks able to do it, but it would have a hell of a job getting that legislation through the Oireachtas. Uh, the people won't stand for it, and there would be a backbench revolt. I thought Patrick Patrick Keelty was good, was delighted to see the two Johnnies, and he even got the inspiration to apply for their show. Uh, now, that's from Anton. And Dermot says, although I'm on disability and I'm entitled to a free TV license, I refuse to get one because RTE would get revenue then, and I don't watch it, and they don't deserve it. Thanks for the comments. 083 396 Another very big story, and I suppose more pertinent and, and certainly when it comes to our safety and the future of security in the country, the Garda Representative Association has been in the press for all the wrong reasons of late. But is the organisation out of step with its members, the rank-and-file Gardaí? Mick Clifford has been writing about this extensively for the Irish Examiner and he joins me now. Morning to you, Mick. Morning, Irish. Mick, in, in Saturday's Examiner, you say it was also different five years ago when the former senior RUC officer took up the role as commissioner. Uh, Drew Harris was appointed to oversee a major programme of reform. But wouldn't you agree that's what he's actually doing? He's completely reforming the Garda Siakana. Yeah, that, that's true, Gard. I mean, he a small bit of background. Like that came as a result of a culmination of a number of scandals in the Gardaí over thirty odd years. The final one being the Morris McCabe case, which I think most of your listeners will probably be aware of. Following that, the government decided to set up a commission in the future policing. They produced what was going to be a blueprint for the professionalisation of the Gardaí in in a way that's fit for policing in the twenty first century. And as you say, he was brought in from the outside. I think it's fair to say that it was considered that the issues had kept arising to such an extent that they felt the best thing was to bring somebody in from the outside. Now, he has begun that program of reform, most definitely, uh, in various ways. But, I mean, there are a couple of issues around it. The big one that has come up with this uh, vote of confidence is the roster. And to be fair to Drew Harris... All he wants to do is implement a roster that was agreed prior to the pandemic and that was that then was changed to suit policing within the pandemic. But the Garda Representative Association want to retain that. Now, on one hand, as we know, we all in the workplace have reassessed things after the pandemic and particularly with a lot of working from home and that. And presumably there's a feeling in the Garda that the work-life balance demands that they keep the same roster. As opposed to that, Drew Harris is the man with whom the buck stops. He believes the best interest is the public of the old roster, and that is where a big problem lies. But apart from that, if that was the only issue, it would be one thing. But everything I sense from talking to Gardy is that morale is on the floor for a number of different reasons, and a certain amount of these have to do with the manner in which Drew Harris is bringing in his reforms. Mm. Just to go back to the roster, Mick. The, the, the current roster which came out of COVID is four 12-hour shifts on, four days off. So you, you start a shift either at 7am or 7pm, isn't that right? 
Yeah, that's it. And I mean, like, it was put to me like this by one guard, and, you know, it, it varies for different elements of, of the organization. But take, for instance, some of the detectives or some of the armed support units or any of the, the guard element that are armed. And, you know, they, they're going to be called to situations um, that demand high concentration, everything that they're trained for in that scenario. Well, the way it was put to me, say you're a Garda and you're on the fourth of those 12-hour shifts, Mm. and say it's the the, the, the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., just for the sake of it, which is perfectly, you know, to be accepted for at least half the force at any one time. Anyway, say it's that, and you're coming to the end of that. And remember now, you're talking about a scenario, any of us who work nights know that your sleep patterns are such, you're going to be awake at a certain time. When you're coming to the end of your 12-hour shift, on the fourth one in a row, and your sleep patterns for four days have been such that you'll inevitably be awake for a good few hours before you go to work, are you at optimum level to meet any kind of threat or to be there to protect the public security at that level when you're working that kind of a shift? And that's the way it was put to me by a guard now himself. And he suggested a question could be raised about that and therefore is it in the best interests? Now, that's only one element to the guardie, as we know. Most of the guardie are not armed. But you could apply that to other areas that don't necessarily involve firearms and whether or not it is the best model in terms of public safety. Now, to be fair to the guards, you have to also see that no more than huge chunks of the population, they are reassessing that work-life balance. And to them, this is a far uh, better scenario in that regard than the six, eight-hour shifts followed by four days off, which six, eight-hour shifts by four days off, guard doesn't sound too bad either to be honest with you I'd suggest to a lot of workers but there's definitely an issue there and there's as of now there's no sign of them bridging it I mean yesterday it was announced that the GRA and the commissioner and the minister for justice are going to sit down and talk about it and there was also a suggestion that even when the changeover happens I think it's on the 6th of November that the Guardian might continue with the old roster and that would be a major issue one other element to that the Association of Guard Sergeants and Inspectors, which obviously are far less, but there's maybe 2,000 of them, I'm not sure, but there's, they've agreed to revert to the old roster, which right. is interesting in itself too. And are, are they, when you say now, these are the inspectors and the sergeants, am I mm-hmm. right in thinking that they, they, want, yes. they want to go back to the old roster? Well, they've agreed to, I'm not sure whether they're they, thrilled they, they with it or not, to, yeah. but they, 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 they've agreed um, once, they, I think, as I understand it, there were certain negotiations once the pandemic ended, and out of that, it broke down between the GRA and, and, and Garda Management, but the AGSI, the Association of Garda Sergeant Inspectors, in the end, they agreed to go back to it, so... No, I don't know. You can argue some of them wouldn't necessarily be on, on the beat or whatever, but again, it's broken up very differently. But it, it is indicative that this is not something that the whole of the force is against. Yeah. Is the guard the force, as we know it, at breaking point? Well, <clears throat> you see, it's very difficult to, to notice because no more than any sector, Gareth, as you well know, um, everybody puts the worst foot forward in terms of their conditions. I don't know, is that part of the Irish condition? Are we worse in this country than others? But whether it be farmers, public servants, the media, whomever, we all, uh, you know, there's a large feeling among large sections that we've never had it so bad. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Now, 
having said all of that, yes, there is definitely an issue. There's an issue with recruitment and retention. One signal of that is the number of guards that are leaving the force in what was, remember, going back traditionally, considered to be a very good job, particularly if, if you weren't fortunate enough to very high education attainment. And not only that, within the force, you could get very high education attainment. But the, the, the working conditions at a time when the economy is booming and there are other alternatives, the, the terms and conditions are not regarded as that attractive. But even at that, when you, even putting that into context, a lot of younger Gardaí in particular, they see the working conditions, the amount of paperwork that has to be done, the, 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 the state of the IT systems in some respects. And unlike their older colleagues and, and those of us who, who would have put up with some of this stuff going back a few years, they're not willing to put up with it. So there is definitely an issue over morale. Whether or not a change of the commissioner in the context of trying to modernise the force would do anything, I I would wonder. I, I, I just would wonder at this stage. Speaking of that, let's talk about the, the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. Is that still a jobs for the boys club? Well, the case could be made that it is. I mean, for example, I had the story in the examiner there a few weeks ago that a, um, there was a, a competition for a new general secretary of the GRA. Now, the General Secretary of the GRA is paid in the region 150 grand a year. Mm. It's a very good job. It's a very responsible job. So a professional recruitment firm was brought in to oversee the process. And that recruitment firm uh, conducted interviews in the normal course of, of, of job selection and picked a guard that they believed was best qualified for the job. And um, despite that, it went before the Central Executive Committee, which is uh, effectively the board of the GRA. There's about 33 members on it, and only, only two, I think, are women. Mm. Um, and they rejected it. Now, part of the issue there is that at least three or four of those who were on that board had gone for the jobs themselves. Is so the, one would have thought... Is this, this is Damien McCarthy, I take it, you're talking about, yeah? Yes, David yes. McCarthy, yeah. Who, 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 who would be a well-known figure. to the GRA. He was president, actually, for over 10 years. Or, he was. Yeah, he was, a, he was a public face of the GRA. Very well regarded. Yeah. Public, from everything I could gather. He'd been long-term Garda in Dublin's um, north inner city. And, yeah. and I, I would say, I, I would try to say as neutrally as possible, highly regarded. Guard. But one way or the other, uh, it was decided... Um, not to ratify him. Yeah. Which, when you think it was a professional, they, they, they went to the, to the hassle of, of hiring a professional firm, which constitutes, say, in the region, 30, 40,000. Mm. They conducted, and yet they did not ratify the candidate, and they started the process again, and they now have a different um, general secretary elect who's been ratified by the CEC, must also be ratified by a special delegate. But So it's, you, you know, you'd have to raise questions there. Is, for example, on the basic level, was that in the best interests of the 10,000 or so members that the person considered professionally to be the best for the job and a long-serving guard himself, a long-standing rep of the GRA, that he wasn't selected? Was that in the best interests of the members? And I think that's a very uh, legitimate question to ask. You know? yeah. And uh, Drew Harris now, he's another two years to run on, on his commissioner tenure. What do you think will happen after that? Does the force want to go back to a selection process where the new commissioner will come from within its ranks? That certainly seems to me to be the case. 
I would think so, and, and on one level you can understand why they would want it, but then again, there are other considerations, and, and you, you can go back again that that would have been the same thing that would have arisen when Drew Harris was appointed. But to, to be fair, I would imagine, for example, whenever Drew Harris finishes, if he sees out his two years, and who knows if he wants or gets an extension, doesn't look likely at the moment, but who knows what could change. But whenever his term ends, I would imagine it would be an open competition that would include both external and internal uh, candidates and, and, and see who best comes out of that. But there's no doubt that this appointment, to Harris appointment, was a watershed to the extent that, you know, and you have to say this, when I mentioned Garda scandals over 30 years, successive governments have to take a huge chunk of the responsibility for that because going back to the 1970s, they turned a blind eye numerous Garda scandals and when you have a scenario like that impunity is going to set in there's no question in the world about it but it'll be back to the government in terms of uh, how they go about it um, the next time around as well well actually the government won't be directly involved but the, the selection process I'd imagine be external and internal candidates So in two years time Drew Harris will will finish as commissioner uh, there's a huge probability that we will have a completely new government so will that throw things into disarray again for example if Sinn Féin gets in um, perhaps with co- in coalition with Fianna Fáil for, just for, for want of a better com- combination what sort of what what's just from your own experience? How will the Garda Representative Association feel about that sort of a combination of government? I I, I don't think they have an issue with any of that. I I, I don't think they get involved in politics to that extent. Um, and uh, uh, the the old relationship between government and uh, the policing is not as it once was, there certainly is, uh, there has to be relations, but the old one is not as it once was. You know, there's the famous anecdote about um, about the Garda coming in, it was Charlie High himself told it, or Brian Lennon, the, the two of them in the pub and the Garda coming in. Yeah, and, and the, the Garda coming in to clear people out after hours, and one of them turns around to him and says, do you want a point or a transfer? <laughs> I mean, the, the, yeah. those days are, are, um, are long gone, so I don't think they would get involved uh, once, once they were assured as a body that um, any government coming in was entirely um, playing completely by the democratic rules as established over the last century, but I can't see a scenario where it wouldn't be. But I, I, I don't think that of itself will um, will be an issue in terms of the Gardaí. Are, are you surprised by the number of early resignations? For example, I was talking to a Gardaí there uh, last week. He's 33 uh, he's now decided to quit the Gardaí and he's just going to travel the world and there's a possibility, he says, that he may actually join the Australian police force. Yes, you have done that. And you're going back again, Gareth, to... Um, I mean, I, I, I'm of an age when when I finished up my education. Uh, you know, perhaps it was slightly changing then, this idea of the, 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 the big... If you didn't have to immigrate, which I, I did most of my classes initially, but the big thing was the permanent pensionable job. Those days are gone. Um, and they're gone in, in, in both ways. They're gone in terms of there's a certain insecurity in employment, but so gone to the extent that younger people now, uh, because of economic advances, want more from a career. And I think there's no doubt that um, the job is nowhere near as attractive as it was. It can be made attractive, even 
without, you know, majorly uh, involving pay as such, but if you had proper working conditions. And, and a, a theme I've heard come a number of Gardaí is, is uh, they don't express it directly like this, but what it amounts to is job satisfaction, that it's more difficult for those who are really into the job and who want to be guards to get job satisfaction. And a certain amount of that is resources and the way things have been managed for years. A certain amount of it is among older and inevitably higher up the management ladder uh, Gardaí, they, 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 they're comfortable doing things the old way and they just want to continue that way. So there's definitely a lot of issues in regards to that in terms of how things need to change. Mm. And finally, Mick, uh, I know that Justice Minister Helen McEntee has entered the ring right now and both herself and Commissioner Drew, Drew Harris have contacted the GRA for talks and I think they're hoping they'll take place next week ahead of this conference in Killarney uh, where the Gardaí will decide on what comes next, what they intend to do next. How do you think that will go? Do you think that anything will be achieved by that meeting between Helen McEntee, Drew Harris and the, the GRA? It's very hard to know, Gareth. I mean, as of now, neither of them are for turning. And in both instances, there would be a huge loss of face if there was an about turn by either the commission or, or the GRA. So you're going to have to find some kind of a solution um, that allows both of them to be relatively happy with the outcome. You know, uh, it, it's, it's definitely a, a very... Um, a very tricky scenario. Yeah. Michael, uh, one of our listeners says this morning, Mickey says, uh, for Helen McEntee and Drew Harris to change the rules is a little bit like they're trying to change the rules of hurling. It's an interesting analogy. Well, to be fair, you see, I'm back again, and, and, and this is the point. People keep referencing the new roster. It is not a new roster. Yeah. It, it, now, it wasn't in for long, but it was piloted, and it had been agreed by the GRA in 2019. So, uh, Helen McEntee or anyone or the commissioners are not changing the rules. They want to revert to that. The question is, has the workplace, and particularly the workplace in, in a vital area like policing, changed as a result of the pandemic to the extent that this originally pandemic era roster should be retained? Just a listener seems to think, Mick, uh, currently it's four 12-hour shifts and four days off, which is what you were saying. And the, yeah. this listener seems to think that the new roster is six 10-hour shifts and four off. Is that correct? Six 10-hour shifts? My understanding, my understanding is it's back to the 8-6. Six 8-hour Yeah, Yeah, that's my understanding of it, yeah. yeah. Good to talk to you, Mick. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks a lot, Mick Clifford there from the Irish Examiner. Uh, interesting piece actually there in Saturday's Examiner in relation to all that's been going on. Um, I, interesting, I, 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 I applied for the Guardi actually when I left school and uh, failed the medical because I had asthma. Uh, so height-wise, yeah, perfect. I was regarded as, you know, education, pretty okay. Um, I thought Templemore but it might be beckoning, but no, they said no. Your own lungs, I'm afraid. There's the door. Close it gently behind you. But I think if if I had to make that choice, having spent the last two years working four 12-hour shifts and getting four days off that I could spend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And with my family... And with my friends, and, you know, maybe for the four days off, you might catch a couple of days away if the kids are grown up, whatever. Um, that's, they're the normal shifts in factories. You look at Dell, you look at Pfizer, uh, you know, they, they do four 12-hour shifts and you get three or four days off. I sometimes think that six eight-hour shifts, that's six days in a row you're working eight-hour shifts. To my understanding, those eight-hour shifts can differ. So one might start at seven. Uh, a day later, you could be in at nine. So, you know, it fluctuates. Probably not good from a sort of a balanced health point of view. And then you just get the same four days off. I'd like to hear your comments on that. 0833 96 96 96. There is no loss greater than that of a child. Cork dad Colin Curran lost his little boy Sonny at just 25 weeks old and he joins me now. Good morning to you, Colin. How's it going, Gallup, bud? Going well, going well. Um, at a distance, listening to your story and the story of other parents in similar situations, how are you now? And can you take us back a little bit and tell us the story? Yeah, of course I can, but, well, basically, Sonny, it was all in the middle of the pandemic, we found out that my partner was pregnant. So, as you know, back then, like, there was no, there was no one allowed in for the scans or anything like that. There was no partners allowed in. So, my first scan I went to was the 18-week scan out in Ballincollig. It was a private scan. So, that was the first time I went to the scan, and it was actually them out there, they detected that Sonny was sick. They, they spotted something on his chest. But they basically, like, they couldn't tell us what it was. They just gave us a referral letter to go to the CUMH. So I first thought, they just said it was CCAM, which is basically uh, a cyst on the baby's chest. They said they could go away during the pregnancy or when he was born, and they reassured us everything would be okay. So then at, at 26 weeks, my, uh, my partner went into early labour. And uh, when he when when Sonny was born, the 
he was actually sicker than first thought. He had CDH, which is uh, basically a hole in the diaphragm where the, the organs move up into the chest. Right. And uh, he was in neonatal then for a while, then Cork the ICU. And after a week and a half, he was shifted up to Crumlin. And how how long did he live after being moved to Crumlin, Colin? Yeah, we were up for another two and a half weeks. So basically, after three and a half, he was three and a half weeks old when he passed away. Yeah, when you even when you walk into Crumlin, like what we were going through, while we were up with Sunny, even what we were just seeing, like it's just life changing. The sick kids and up there, like it's you'd wish it. I know one. But what like you never forget like how good like they're unbelievable up there even to this day like they'd still be getting in contact with me and my parent or checking up on us and they're just they're unbelievable up there. For the short while Sonny was was in your lives, Colin, what was he like? He he was sent to us for a reason. Like even though like after Sonny passed away, people thought we were probably going to go out for games, but he's after turning me into the person I am today. Sorry, no, I was just getting how to talk about him. That's okay. That's <laughs> but, like, in, 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 in his short life, he, he, he's a legend up around the north side. Like, everyone knows him, no matter where you go. He touched the lives of a lot, a lot of people in the midst of it. Like, our first time we got the whole sunny, like, we knew he was going to pass away. We t- They told us that, that there was no more they could do, so we took him off the ventilator. And it was me and Karen's first time holding him. And the, the nurses up in Crumlin, they turned around and said, uh, Colin, know the song you always sing to him? Will you sing that? So they said like that, he'd only last a few minutes. So I started singing You Never Walk Alone to him. And even though that was the hardest moment of our life, it was beautiful. All the nurses and doctors put their hands around us and joined in and started singing You Never Walk Alone to Sonny as well. God. That, and... I, I I often think, and I've I've been in Crumlin Children's Hospital a couple of times down through the years for different reasons. It's an extraordinary place. I really don't know how the staff do the jobs they do. But no, no, they're, they're, the people walk up there. They're actually, they're, I said, they're angels sent from above. The jobs that they do by looking after babies, looking after sick kids, is unbelievable. You said, Sonny transformed you into the person you are today but what, what's that person yeah just after turning me into a better person all around everything I do now I know that he's looking down on me and I just that, that he's guiding me for as long as I live like I was going to try to give back to sick kids and kids in need every year we try to mark his birthday in a special way by doing a charity event just for the different different hospitals and all like that. Since Sonny passed away, there's have to be numerous there's have to be numerous the charity events done for him. Uh on his first birthday, me and seven of my close friends, we actually done a, another skydive for uh Crumlin. Mm-hmm. We raised thirteen and a half thousand for him and a good friend of mine and an old work colleague, John Kiley, he done the charity swim on behalf of Sonny for the kids ward out in the CUH. And then my my aunt's husband and a good friend, Miles Gaffney, he done a, a charity night of singing and he raised 16,000 in Sonny's name as well. Wow. Where did you think of the name? It's a beautiful name. It reminds me of an old song by a guy called Bobby Hebb. It's just such a beautiful song. Yeah. Get a chance to listen to we, are, we, are, we were trying for a, a child for a while and we always had the name Sonny and everyone was asking us that. You're actually going to laugh. Oh, did you ever hear the film Big Daddy? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the Sonny's. That's the Adam Sandler's name, and the Sonny. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, town, town. Yeah. I always loved that name, and I fell in love with it as well. And the name was just perfect for him. Yeah. How is Karen? Yeah, she's she's grand. She's doing good. Just uh, after Sonny passed away, we were blessed with twin girls. They were sent to us fourteen months after he passed away. So we've twins now. We've double trouble at home. <laughs> right. Okay. But you've got him looking after them as well. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, every day, like they're, 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 they're told about the big brother Sonny, we bring him out to the grave all the time. You're going to do another skydive, isn't that right? Yes, we're actually doing it this Saturday, which uh, which will have been Sonny's third birthday. There's me and another six porters from the Mercy Hospital, me and uh, work colleagues. We're doing uh, up in Offaly for the kids who are inside the Mercy this time. Working here. Every day you see, we're seeing it firsthand, the brilliant job they're doing upstairs, the sick kids. And since the twins have been born, they've actually been inside her once or twice. Like So I'm just looking forward to doing it. It's good to give back, especially working here as well. Like, and like as you say, working for so long in Mercy University there, it, it, it must be extraordinary when suddenly you find you're on the other side that you're bringing your little boy into hospital. Yeah, it is. Well, no, since 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 Sonny was born, like I, I wasn't working in the hospital then. I was working down CGI coal stores in Milton. They were unbelievable to me when he passed away. And I don't know, I was just like, something said to me after he passed away that I have to work in the hospital. That's my chance to give back. It's my chance to help people. So I know every day when I'm walking out to work, I, I'm looking forward to coming into work because it feels like I'm giving back. Do you know? Well, they say the portraits This job the, is just meant for me. The porters are the most important people in the hospital, would you agree? I 100% agree. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> they are. They, I think they they kind of keep you connected to, to the real world, really, because they... They do, yeah. And yeah. like, I, I, since I'm walking here, like the porters, they're, they're, um, everyone in general, the staff, they've been unbelievable. Like the Mercy is a, a, an unbelievable place to work. Yeah. Well, I, I can vouch for the fact that the Mercy is an unbelievable place to, to go to as well for care. I was actually in the Mercy last week, so my very best wishes to all of you. And Colin, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Where is the skydive taking place? It's out in uh, County Offaly, inside the Air, airfield, the Irish Parachute Club. There's a, an online link as well if uh, anyone wants to donate. It's www.idonate forward slash fundraiser forward slash Colin Curran. Okay, Colin, great to chat to you. And thank you. Give our best to Karen and Thinking of Sonny and all of you today. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Take care. Colin Curran there from Nagnahini, uh, who's a porter at, at the Mercy. You'll see him if, if you're around. Um, I think he probably, he was cut out for the job. There's no doubt about that. Talking about uh, in memory of his beautiful little boy, Sonny, and for those of you who've done parachute jumps, that uh, that airfield, the, the the it's a huge patch of land there in County Offaly. Actually, so many great parachute dives have been done there for charities down through the years. That's happening this weekend in aid of the Mercy University Hospital Foundation's Kids and Teens Appeal. Welcome back, uh, PJ's back tomorrow. This is Gareth O'Callaghan with you till twelve midday today. Now, uh, lots of comments coming in on quite a number of the topics we were talking about this morning in relation to the Garda Representative Association, the GRA vote of no confidence in Garda Commissioner Drew Harris. Paul says uh, the Taoiseach said last August that Harris will not be removed from his position if the GRA vote no confidence in him. This is amid the dispute over rosters. Um, that won't happen, Mr. Varadkar said, adding the government has confidence 
in Commissioner Harris. Uh, Paul says that's a little bit like a football team unanimously saying their manager is useless, but then the board is a football club saying they think he's actually doing a really good job. Interesting analogy. Obviously, football has got nothing in common with uh, Garda duties and the whole nature of the police world and that. But I think the, the whether the GRA decide to meet with Drew Harris and with Minister for Justice Helen McEntee next week, this is ahead of their convention, their emergency gathering in Killarney. I think it's on the 26th. Is it the 26th? Probably Wednesday week, I think, uh, to discuss... Uh, to next week actually to discuss uh, what their next port of call their next line of action will be I think that's going to be very very interesting in terms of whether the Taoiseach himself gets involved in this so far he's just making comments in favour of the Garda Commissioner in relation to Ryanair we were talking earlier on this morning about um, El, El May, this is a, a young young hurler. Uh, she's only 11. Mary Newman, her aunt, was chatting to us just when shortly after we opened the show talking about the decision by Ryanair in Manchester Airport not allowing her to take her hurley on with the little buggy. Um, um, then they compromised and said they wanted £60 sterling. Then they compromised again and said they'd let her bring it on for 40 Um and it's still in Manchester, despite the fact that the great Ryanair staff at Cork Airport said, no problem. Anytime she's ever been going through, they just let her take it through. Bernie says, I can see both sides of this. There could be anything hidden in anything going through an airport now. There can even be drugs hidden in suites. So I think we have to look at the responsibility and decisions that the staff have to make. Go on to Facebook and have a look at the Ryanair complaints page and see all the complaints from people that travelled with Ryanair. Ryanair should be ashamed of themselves. This is Kim, who's talking here and we'll never fly with them again they are thieves in suits harsh words the crew on board are completely separate to the boarding staff I'm ex-cabin crew also it's a separate piece of baggage so it has to be tagged I don't agree with the charges though um, yeah a number of callers asking about those uh, saying you know where did they come up with the 60 who decided on that and then who decided to actually reduce the fee which is a good question. Another caller says, I wonder do the ground staff make money out of these extra charges? You know, kind of cash in hand for charging for items. There's no way of the bosses, in inverted commas, knowing the fee was charged. Um, and it reminds me also, uh, w- myself and, and my wife were refused uh, access to the plane. We were coming back from Stansted after a weekend. It was Mother's Day a couple of years back. And um, there was still about 45 minutes left before the flight departed. We were able to look out the window at the plane and there were people still waiting to actually climb up the stairs of the plane. And the guy, the fella at the gate said, no, you're not getting on. And we said, but sure, the, the access door to the apron leading to the plane is just at the bottom of the stairs. He says, no, my final decision don't know who he was. He was wearing some sort of an outfit. He looked like a cleaner to me, to be honest with you. And then he started singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, This was on Mother's Day. And needless to say, uh, my wife is still in counselling as a result of that. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, these, these, like I just wonder, as as Owen Corrie said, depending on what airports you go to, um, you're going to face completely different uh, arrangements and um, I suppose situations where a lot of staff uh, 
they're on a bit of a buzz. They like to think, well, Michael O'Leary's not standing beside me, so as long as he's not around me, I'm the boss of Ryanair and I can make whatever decisions I want. I, I tend to think that that's... Uh, that seems to be the case in many situations. In relation to the new media tax uh, uh, replacing the television license, we were talking about this earlier on at the start of the show. Jerry says, Gareth, it should be collected by revenue and collected monthly from those in arrears and from those owing into the future. There should be absolutely no courts involved, and I feel that it would be an abuse of the court system by judges. The non payment of a television license is an offence, but doesn't warrant someone being criminalised when the government can collect the money by peaceful and fair means. Kind regards, Jerry. Good comment, Jerry. I'm not sure whether it'll be by peaceful means. Um, it took quite a lot of people a while to cop on and start paying the local property tax. And uh, as you know, revenue commissioners, they, you know, they are lenient in certain circumstances, which calls for leniency and a little bit of, you know, uh, loose rope and that they said, yeah, if you have problems paying it, you know, we can defer it or whatever. And I think it will be the same here. But whether you can actually bring 100,000 people who haven't paid their television license before a judge, um, 100,000 people probably taking in what, would you get through 200 cases if bench warrants are issued to 100,000 people? That's a lot of bench warrants, you know. That's, that's it. And you've got to remember, a bench warrant can't just be dropped in your letterbox. It has to be brought by the Gardaí. So that's 100,000 bench warrants. Uh, already, uh, the Gardaí, under a lot of pressure, not enough Gardaí, too much to do. No, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work. Somebody said you need a license for your radio. Thank goodness you don't. Uh, the license for the radio was done away with in 1972. There was a license actually for radio. Now, uh, parents across Cork are blue in the face from trying to secure swimming lessons for their kids. This is nothing new. The shortage of swimming lessons for smallies has been a major issue in Cork for many, many years now. And Deirdre McArdle's on the line. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well. Blue in the face is probably the the right way to put it, isn't it? I mean, it's it's certainly certainly a good way of putting it, all right, Gareth. Um, yeah. Look, what, I mean, I've only become aware of it recently um, since my daughter started school, and I'm kind of hearing the chat at the the school gates. Um, but certainly, it's it's something that every time you mention swimming lessons, um, you know, you get all the anecdotes and people telling you how long their kids are on waiting lists. And, um, you know, if there's news of a waiting list open up, then everybody wants to know the details and they're scarping to try and find uh, to get on the list. Or, But it certainly is, look, it's tricky. And, and, and just in my article there was kind of doing a bit of an investigation and seeing, well, why why is why is it so difficult and what's, what is the problem? Um, and it does seem to boil down to, I, I guess, the the... The facilities just aren't there, or there there are not not enough of them there, um, and and the pools themselves are are trying their best. In fairness, it certainly does sound like that, but um, you know they can only do so much. They can only take so many kids. And how how long are the waiting lists? Look, uh, I mean, they, they were reluctant to kind of tell me exactly, but from from what I can gather, there, there's there's at least two, three hundred kids on every waiting list of every pool in East Cork. Anyway, not 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 uh, O'Fay on all of the, the pools in Cork, but. Um, I mean, at that rate, really, Gareth, you're looking at a couple of years. But yeah. then again, it's hard to, to pin it down, as they were saying, because it depends what level your child is at and how w- whether spaces open up kind of throughout the program or how they can kind of slot in maybe further on if they're more advanced or if they're newbies. I think the, the new 
the new kids just starting out, probably that's where the, the glut of the waiting list is, I would imagine, um, because, yeah, it's it's tricky enough to get in at that early stage, I think. Um, yeah, look, it, it is, the, the demand is huge, huge for, for, for swimming lessons. It, it is huge for all school activities, after school activities, I know, but the swimming lessons seem to be particularly popular. Yeah, and it sounds like it's easier, it, it, you'd get your child more quickly into a school than you would into swimming lessons. It sounds like that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. How many how many swimming pools are available? For example, the area now in East Cork that you were looking at. Um, how yeah. many, how many swimming pools did you approach? So um, there's four swimming pools here that provide swimming lessons, um, and that that's throughout the East Cork area. So we're we're looking at um, Cove, Yall, Middleton, and then Gary Vaux, um, and that's. Uh, that's, you know, I mean, it's a huge area, it really is, and there's thousands and thousands of families here. Um, I kind of was trying to do the maths here just very kind of quickly, but yeah. let, let's say for argument's sake, that there's about 20,000 kids at the very least, um, you know, in that area mm-hmm. um, with, with just four pools, you know, yourself. It just doesn't add up, really. It, it, um, it's, it's a tricky one, and especially because the pools can only take, you know, there's only going to be a certain amount of kids in each class. You know, you're, you're not going to take more than 10 um, I know there's private lessons as well, but sure, they're they're only taking one, maybe two. Um, so you know, it is it is difficult, and the figures just yeah, look, they don't add up. They just don't really. Is it from a, a kind of a? Would it be from a competitive point of view or from a safety point of view, dear? That parents want their kids to learn swimming. I don't know, Gareth. I suppose it's maybe a bit of both. I mean, from mm. my, I can only speak from my own perspective, really. I would. Um, it would be from a safety point of view, really, um, that I would want my daughter to to get swimming lessons just so she's comfortable in the water. I, I would be like I can I can swim myself and I would certainly like to teach her. And, I, you know, you do so much yourself and you can certainly do that, um, you know, when you go on holidays and things like that, get them used to the water. But, you know, in the back of my mind. I would like to make sure that a professional has has kind of given her those safety steps that um, that you you can kind of just relax a small bit. I know nobody does relax when their kids are in in, in a pool or in yeah. water at all. It's always in the back of your your head for sure. But um, you know, it, 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 I think having somebody teach them that is a professional. That's probably where uh, that's why so many uh, parents probably want to get their kids get swimming lessons so they can kind of relax a small little bit. Yeah. Great to talk to you, Deirdre. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Gareth. Thank you. Take care. That's Deirdre McCardle there um, on swimming lessons. If you'd like to contact us, 0833 96 96 96. Lots of comments coming in on the new media tax that uh, is proposed to uh, replace the television license, which has been running since 1948. 48 would cost you two pounds a year which was a huge amount of money in 1948 uh, to buy a television license um and realistically the the the, the re- there was no television to watch here in Ireland in 1948 you were buying it to support the radio license which i think was 2RV that was the name of the radio station um very very Long, long, long time ago. Actually, if I have time, I'll tell you a personal story about television licences. Our third hour, PJ's back with you tomorrow morning at nine. It's Gareth O'Callaghan with you till 12. Now, um, I don't know whether you have an interest in naturopathy, but a naturopath who said bicarbonate soda cures cancer and is banned for life by the health watchdog in Australia is en route as I speak to Cork. And I'm joined on the line by TD McBarry. Morning to you, Mick. 
Good morning to you, Gareth. Mick, this is, I was, you know, reading up this, this, this individual, she's, she's well known. Uh, the New South Wales Healthcare Complaints Commission has upsell, upheld huge complaints about her for misleading vulnerable people. And she has now been struck off uh, the, her natur- naturopathy institute register from practising for life. Isn't that the case? That is the case, and as you say, here she is in Cork this week. In fact, my understanding is that uh, she has a week of seminars, uh, which began yesterday uh, and are, are are being continued into today. So, you raised the question about what happened in Australia. So, we're talking about the province of New South Wales, where this woman, um, who's lecturing in Cork today, Barbara O'Neill, was barred for practicing for life because she told clients that their cancers, so we're talking about vulnerable clients, Mm -hmm. uh, were a fungus and that that uh, could be cured by using bicarbonate soda. So she wasn't banned for six months or for a year. She was banned from life, for life. And she is uh, doing a series of lectures and courses up in the Silver Springs in Tivoli um, this week for money, uh, €30 for a morning or afternoon session, €60 a day. And I think that Clayton Silver Springs um, should break their silence on this. Um, They should not be hosting this event. They should not be making money themselves from this event. And I think that they should come on the radio and say, you know, how can they stand over this? How can they do that? Let's talk more about Barbara O'Neill. Um, she has described cancer as a fungus that's curable by 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 actually absorbing bicarbonate soda. Isn't that the case? That is the case, as I understand it. I've read the newspaper reports, including a report from the Guardian newspaper, uh, that people who were cancer patients were urged uh, not to go down the road of chemo, Uh, but to understand that their cancer was a fungus and that it could be cured by use of bicarbonate soda. I mean, that is quackery by any name, and it doesn't come as a surprise to me that the medical watchdog in New South Wales, Australia, decided to ban her, to bar her from practicing, not, as I say, for six months or for a year, but for life. And now we have this woman in our city, Uh, in a hotel a few miles up the road. Uh, You know, none of this information is being advertised. What's being advertised is that there'll be discussion on a range of medical uh, conditions and people are being charged at the door. It is wrong. It should not be happening, and the hotel should not be hosting this event. It's. It, it, let's just remind ourselves here that somebody with cancer, particularly where traditional treatments are not working, so if, if for example, the, the cancer has metastasized or it's one of the primary cancers that responds to very little treatment, people will reach out to anybody who they think might actually prolong their life and, and give them extra quality of life. Isn't that fair to say? I would strongly believe that that would be the case. Yes, yeah. but, do, uh, do, but I mean, you're you're. But but sorry, Mick. Sorry, yes. no, no. Just to balance that, presumably individuals who'll be visiting these lectures and 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 hoping to find some way of actually curing 
their cancer or at least trying to find a way of remission. Um, I presume, that, is it fair to say that they would have discussed this with their oncologists or they're just saying, well, right, the traditional treatment hasn't worked for me, so maybe this might work? Well, I don't know for sure uh, who's showing up there uh, this week. I would imagine that there are a range of people. Um, there are probably people um, uh, going there straight off the bat. There are other people who may have been through the medical system and uh, are hoping against hope that this might work as a last resort. Uh, but certainly, if those are the type of cures that are being prescribed, uh, they will not work mm. um, because it is quackery. And I think the medical um, authorities, the medical watchdog in Australia, uh, who would know a thing or two about this, uh, is on the money when it says, uh, no, this is not on. Uh, you give a false hope to people and taking money for it, uh, uh, you're barred. And the idea that someone like that can just... Uh, arrive into our city and arrive into our country because I understand that she's going on a tour Cork is the first leg uh, of a tour, she's going to other venues around the country um, there has to be questions asked about that so there's two questions to be asked I, I think the first question is of the hotel that is hosting the event which is Clayton Silver Springs um, I don't think they should be hosting that event and I think they should break their silence on the issue. But also, there's an issue for the likes of myself and legislators because there was a piece of legislation in the last doll was put forward actually by a Fine Gael TD, Kate O'Connell, called the Treatment of Cancer Advertisements Bill, mm -hmm. which uh, basically would outlaw false advertising on this issue. It, f it fell in the last doll. The, the doll didn't uh, process it by the time it, ha it had fallen. And I think um, these issues need to be revisited now. And maybe uh, legislation which is broader than just treatment of cancer, but looking at other uh, medical conditions as well. Just to give listeners a, a clear idea here, Mick, um, the, 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 the Complaints Commission received many complaints against Barbara O'Neill. According to the investigation in New South Wales, O'Neill falsely claimed in one lecture that a doctor had a 90% success rate curing cancer with sodium bicarbonate injections. Now, she produced no evidence whatsoever to support the statistic and never actually identified the doctor involved. Uh, according to the report, she also gave advice based on theories from medical doctors who have been sued by their former patients for failing to treat them Appropriately, including one doctor who was found guilty of manslaughter. It's it's strange to think anybody would find any comfort or any relative gain in taking the advice of an individual like this. Yes, but the thing is that um, the seminars that are being uh, given this week uh, were not advertised uh, with a warning. They were not advertised with information attached about the fact that Barbara O'Neill had been barred from practicing in uh, uh, in Australia uh, or the information that you've just provided your uh, listeners with. So I'm sure there are people going in there who are thinking that, you know, I'm going to be getting good, sound advice today and maybe it'll be an interesting alternative to what I've been told by uh, uh, the doctors and by the health system uh, here. Uh, it's not. Uh, this is dangerous stuff. Uh, in my view, I think this woman's track record uh, shows uh, that no trust should be put in the advice that's being given. And I welcome the opportunity that you've given me 
uh, to get the word out to your listeners today uh, to be wary of this. And, you know, the, the event shouldn't go ahead. The hotel has questions to answer. Let, mm. let's, let's ask them. Yeah, so far they uh, they haven't come on to talk to us about that, but the invitation is there. Uh, Mick Barry, great to talk to you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you. It. Take care. Socialist TV there, Mick Barry. Um, just if, if you're interested, and uh, obviously you've got to remember that the treatment of all forms of cancer is highly complex, highly specialised areas. Oncologists, well, they like when you consider that they start university training to be doctors and then they specialise, which sometimes takes up to 12 to 15 years, depending on what area, whether it's oncology treatment or oncology surgery that they specialise in. Um, th- just having a look at some of the findings of the commission. Um, on Barbara O'Neill, by the way, is a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, usually delivers health lectures to congregants at church-organised events and also lectured overseas and performs telephone conversations and consultations for a fee. Um, she, she, the, the HCCC, this is the New South Wales Commission that undertook the investigation, said the information that she was giving included telling pregnant women not to take antibiotics for strep B infections because, quote-unquote, no baby has ever died from catching strep B out of birth. However, statistics from the Royal Australian College of Obstetricians obstetricians and gynaecologists indicate early onset strep B has a fatality rate of 14% in neonates, a risk that can be reduced by 80% with antibiotics. Complete conflict in terms of the advice that Barbara O'Neill is giving her. So, uh, obviously... The lectures and the discussions are going on over the weekend at the hotel that Mick Barry mentioned there. And um, just tread carefully and, uh, as they say, absorb the information, give it consideration. But um, if you are being treated for cancer at the moment um, or you're undergoing any sort of complex treatment in that area, please consult with your GP or uh, your oncologist. Um, And I'm sure they'll be well aware of this individual. Anyway, um, good to talk to Mick Barry this morning. Welcome back. Lots of ta- uh, talk and reaction to uh, the proposed universal media tax, which the government is examining at the moment. I'd no doubt bringing in uh, consultation agencies at costs of, oh, 50,000 and 70,000. And they'll take the report away and they'll prepare a consultation result. And then there'll be another invoice and... Um, we won't mention barter accounts, but the television license fee, they want to replace it now because <laughs> guess what? It's not working. And 100,000 people all over the country are now refusing to pay it. Um, somebody just commenting here, actually, Lauren says, I remember years ago when they used to have the television license vans driving around the States and they would park outside your window. And my mother used to tell me that there was a kind of a tea bar on the roof. It looked like a kind of a dog's bone. And uh, apparently, I don't know who put this word out, whether it was just sort of spin, but they used to say that that thing on the roof was what they called an oscillation tracer. So they could stop outside your house and they'd switch on the oscillation tracer, you know, and you get... Then they'd be knocking the door and they'd say, ah, you're watching RTE and you don't have a license. So, um, Lauren says, um, my mother, any time the van used to pull up on the road, uh, neighbours would shout over the back wall, the licence van is outside, so we'd turn off the television, turn off the lights, close the curtains and hide behind the couch. (laughs) (laughs) 
Until years later, I found out that the oscillation tracer tracer was just a load of BS. So anyway, I heard another one actually where somebody said that if they wrapped their television in tin foil, that they couldn't tell if they did television license or not. Anyway, the things we believed when we were. Uh, sort of pre-smartphone. Now we're all geniuses, thanks to Google, of course. Anyway, if you have any stories about television licenses uh, or um, the bogeyman, as a lot of people used to call the fellow who'd call for the gas money, you know. Yep. Let us know. 83 PJ was talking to callers last week about how quickly bread seems to be going off recently. We've noticed that. But caller James Toomey has noticed something else that's getting on his goat. Hi there, James. Morning, Gareth. How are you? Very good, thank you. What's getting on your goat? Milk. 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 The amount of milk that we're dumping, yeah? The yeah. amount of milk that I'm dumping, which has my wife there for the last couple of weeks, maybe the last month. Um, that's within three or four days of its day, and we're dumping it down the sink that's going on. Right. Are, are, are you on a hands-free set there? Um, no. I'm oh, that's that's much better now. Yeah, no, just got a sort of background traffic noise there. No, I can hear you perfectly well there. Um, so, yeah, milk. Th- there used to be a time when you could go kind of two days beyond the, the use-by date on milk and it would still be okay. Yeah, well, I figure, like, I think the last couple of months, milk is coming and under the cap, there used to be a film, and that's gone now, so I think that's definitely having a huge impact on the milk and mm. keeping it fresh, you know? Yeah. So that's a big thing. You know, so yeah, it was just something that I, 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 I last week there, and I have the boys and girls, and not Facebook pages, you know, and I put it up in that, and I thought it was our fridge was broken, but I was surprised enough the comments that came up. Yeah, everybody was saying the same thing, you know. That's a hugely popular page because looking at it earlier on this morning, I and mean, it's just it's kind of a reflection of society, isn't it, in so many ways? Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, the conversations to be fantastic on it, and you know, relevant to what's happening around that today, you know. Yeah, but just, uh, yeah, the milk, the milk. No, I'm just wondering, like now that we we live now in a far more competitive supermarket environment. Um, I don't know. How, I don't know how you how old you are, but I remember back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, when Super Quinn came in. Oh, he's gone. We'll, we'll get him back in a, a different line there. It'll be a clearer line. I remember when uh, Pat Quinn and Fergal Quinn, they were the kind of the imprimatur sort of, they were the, these were the supermarket geniuses and they were competing against each other. And uh, there was Super Quinn. And then I think Pat Quinn took over. He, he invented Quinsworth, which came out of the Powers supermarket chain. And... Uh, it was great fun. Many of you will remember uh, Morris Pratt, who was advertising for the Quinsworth brand. And Quinsworth, the popularity went through the roof because Morris Pratt became an absolute legend in houses all over the country. Sort of smoothly talking sort of guy. He was like, he was kind of the Daniel O'Donnell of supermarkets. And people loved him. And uh, then Fergal Quinn decided, hang on a sec, the personable approach here is the way to go with supermarkets and Fergal Quinn and this is my mother God bless her she came home one day and said you won't believe who helped me to pack my bags after the till I said who she says Fergal Quinn and my mother accidentally left her purse behind and at about seven o'clock that evening there was a knock on the door and there was Fergal Quinn holding her purse and he said Mrs O'Callaghan you left your purse behind you and she'd only closed the door and said, thank you, offered to bring him in and make him a cup of tea. He says, no, I have to drop off a few bits and pieces. Then she said to us all, she says, how did he know where I lived? And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe that's just 
supermarket technology, you know. Anyway, th- that was that was the sum total of supermarkets. Then you had Super Quinn versus Quinsworth. But uh, I think is James back on the line? I am. Sorry, Gareth. You, that's okay. Do you remember those days, Quinsworth Super Quinn? Oh, I do. Yeah, I remember Quinsworth. Not so much Quinns or um, Super Quinn, but I remember Quinsworth up in Ockney some years ago. Yeah, I think Super yeah. Quinn was more kind of Dublin based. I think it was Northside Fingers, yeah. I remember, and, and Step Aside, I think. But is it because the supermarket market has become more, uh, I suppose, competitive now that you've got the likes of the Aldis and the Lidl's in, which when they came in were much smaller? organizations than they are now they're now bigger than the traditional supermarkets yeah they are i suppose yeah when they, like you said when they came in they were um they were just doing their thing but they're huge and they're doing they're, they're actually selling um local produce now as well mm. which they didn't at the start yeah maybe so yeah no I, go on sorry yeah, just no no you, you were you were talking about milk there the fact that it's gone off much quicker is that because there are more preservatives in it or not preservatives but additives I um I really don't know to be honest with you, Gareth. Like I was just putting it down to you know when like the tread the light bulb up in the boys and girls knock at that time there was a lot of people coming in supermarkets are turning their fridges off at night time. The film that that used to be on the caps is gone, you know. I mean that definitely would have kept the fresh for longer, you know. Mm. So like milk is sitting in like milk is sitting in storage in the milk places, distributors for God knows how long without this cap film over it and then it's coming to supermarkets. So, like, I mean, we're, we're probably losing two or three dates. Maybe they need to bring the dates back a bit, you know? Yeah. Well, like, like the milk they were dumping there, and we were dumping a lot of it, no, to be fair. Like, one or two litres were just pouring down the sink because it's just gone off. Yeah. And um, if I be honest, we've just left this actually this week. Last week's shopping, we started buying the, the cardboard cartons, and they look, it seems to be okay so far, so good anyway, whatever that's doing to it, you know? Oh, that's very interesting because, uh, mm. yeah, we moved from cardboard to plastic and I noticed that the plastic stuff goes off faster than the cardboard cartons. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you noticed anything else going off faster? Um, cheese, to be honest with you, yeah. Like, again, we're buying cheese there and we'd open it and it's got these, you know, this click, this closing pack with the, you know, the zipper thing on if you want. And, um, you know, we open it, we take our slice of cheese wherever we go back a few days later and there's green spots in it. That's the thing I'm noticing a lot as well. Maybe it's something in the dairy, maybe, you know. Right, yeah. And do you would you throw it out or would you just pick off the green spots? Um, to be fair enough, my wife got out of cheese would throw it out, but I would pick it off, yeah. Yeah, I would be too. And with the bread the same. Like, I find if there's a bit of mould on the bread, I'll just toast it. No, I, I don't know about the bread. No, <laughs> yeah, that's different for me. I, just, I might just throw that away, you know. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's interesting with the bread as well. A lot of the bread is um, it's cold that we're buying these days, you know. I mean, we're, we go up to the supermarkets and, you know, you always go up to the back to get the fresh bread. But um, it's still... A lot of the time when I bring it home, it's cold. It's very rare we get fresh bread unless you buy it freshly made, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Days, that's another thing. There's an admission on your part. I do the same as well. Do you go to the very back of the selection for the... the yeah. The, yeah, I know. I think everybody does that. I think that's... I what, think you all do. Maybe they're yeah. putting all the cloth right to the back and keeping the yeah. fresh. Tell me about the, pop- the popularity of the Boys and Girls of Knocker Page. Um... Yeah, like I said, there's some amazing discussions on it, like um, when we pull up and there's, and there's just be some fantastic debates in it as well, and it'd be interesting um, reading them, you know, all people with different points of views. And at the end of it, 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 it never go, it never gets angry or anything, but it's 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 it, that that side of it is amazing that I find. Um, the people from all over the world are from Lochnahini and the north side is, is amazing. That blows my mind. You know, you've got people yeah. in Africa from Lochnahini, Mexico. It's, it's it's mental, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a great page. It's a great community page. A lot of people, uh, it's a lot of people up there now looking for. Um, it's like 
the community hub if you want yeah. and people would pull up stuff they're looking for something or look they've lost their dog the amount of dogs we found is fantastic yeah I always put up a dog you know and it's always gets found in fairness yeah I love uh, We Are Cork another great uh, Facebook page actually Cork people love talking about anything that's Cork though don't they yeah they do yeah they love the nostalgia but for me you know like I mean I'm going I'm, I'm heading for the big 5-0 there now in January and uh, just my nostalgia overdrive has gone through the roof just looking back you know yeah. I don't know is that a thing when you hit 50 I don't know but it's, it's crazy like you know I, I have a TikTok page as well the boys and girls in Aka and I have it flooded with videos from the area of Park City and some old photos it's actually amazing you should check it out yourself yeah I will I you know? will yeah. Talk, talking about nostalgia becoming popular when you're 50 I can't remember when I was 50 so <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember nostalgia when I was 50 I know but, uh, yeah. I think I think the COVID the whole pandemic thing has made us far more nostalgic I do believe that I think yeah. um, I think memories now particularly memories of, you know, loved ones who are gone and, and awful situations we came through over those two and a half years have made us more appreciative of I think so, yeah. I think so. I agree with you. Yeah, great. Yeah. Nice to talk to you anyway. You too, Gareth. Thanks and we talk to them. Take Cheers, care. Bye. Thank you. Bye, bye. Uh, thanks a lot. James Toomey there. Somebody saying, go on, tell us your television license story. Okay, I will. Why not? Um, before I, I fell in love with the Cork woman and moved to Cork some years back and got married, happily here now, although I'm told uh, I'll still always be just be a visitor, don't expect anything more. But uh, for, for, for about seven years while I was living in Dublin, uh, I lived in an apartment uh, close to the Royal Canal, nice little area, the one-bedroom apartment. And um, I just, there was a television there, I was renting it, uh, when it was affordable to rent apartments, when you could find one to rent. And there was a lovely television, LSD screen, the lot sitting in the corner, I never watched it, uh, because it, 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 it had all the sort of bits and pieces, so you, if you wanted a Sky package, you could play to Sky, and I just thought to myself, sure, nah, I'm not really a big fan of television. So, for the entire seven years I lived there, I never watched television. So if I was working away in a radio station, you know, radio stations are full of televisions. But I was never really interested. Uh, so I said to the landlord, look, get rid of the television because it's taken up a huge chunk of space. But then what happened? I started getting these little postcards from on post. Now, they weren't saying hello from beautiful Connemara or West Cork. These were, we missed you today. We called to check your television license. And I said, well... Okay, I don't have a television license because I don't watch television. But then I realized being in the business of media that they wouldn't be happy with that. So I decided then, I rang Michael, my landlord, and I said, get rid of the TV and get rid of all of those little plug-in things on the wall. Everything, anything that could be attributable to me having a television license, get rid of it. And then I want you as the landlord to write to one post and say, he has no television. So he wrote to them. Didn't hear anything for three months a postcard arrived. We missed you again. We'd like to come and check your television license. I rang them. They didn't answer. So we wrote to them again. Nothing for about six months. Another postcard arrived. This time they said they were coming at such and such a time to be there. So I was there. And I opened the door and they said to me, we're here because we hear you've no television. We'd like to check. I said, what do you mean check? And they said, well, we'd like to have a look around your apartment. I said, so in case I'm hiding the television set, I said, do you want to go down to the basement and check my car in case it's in the boot of the car? Because I was expecting you. They said, no, we just want to come in and have a look around. Well, I said, I'll tell you what, guys, come back with a guard out with yourselves and make sure he's holding a warrant to search the apartment and then I'll let you in. And I closed the door. And I didn't hear anything else until two years later when I was leaving the apartment and the day before I left... 
a postcard arrived. Sean says, P.S. Where did you hide the television set? <laughs> That's a long, long time ago. Anyway, great to hear so many comments uh, on lots of stuff we're talking about today. Just uh, just uh, heard late last night, actually. Uh, for those of you of a certain age, you'll remember him. Roger Whittaker, one of the most celebrated music singers, folk music singers, I suppose, of a generation, has sadly died at the age of 87. Uh, family statement confirmed he died on the 13th of September. Now, that's a few days ago in a hospital in southern France. He was best known for hits. Uh, you'll remember them. Durham Town. Everybody talks about a new world in the morning. Uh, there was also a version later that he did, a beautiful version of Wind Beneath My Wings. And, of course, he was an expert whistler. I'm not going to try that. Iconic artist, wonderful husband and father. He was born in Kenya in 1936. And what many people don't know is that for almost 10 years, he lived near Ahaskra in Ballinasloe. He had a beautiful, big Victorian house that he renovated. Uh, and then, I think, moved from there. Uh, one of Roger's uh, complaints was about the Irish weather. Because <laughs> when you're born in Kenya, you don't see much rain. And that was when he packed up his guitar and brought his wife and himself and took, them, took themselves off to France, southern France, where they get great weather. Anyway, very, very sad news. Uh, Roger Whittaker, uh, regular performer here in Ireland and a former resident passing away. I think my favourite has got to be New World in the Morning. Plenty of chat about the TV licences and uh, somebody saying, are you sure you should have told that story? <laughs> uh, it's, it's historic. That's what it is now. It's sort of it's going back into the old uh, nostalgia department. Anyway, 100,000 non-licence fee payers, they won't pay their licence. It's going to be very interesting to see uh, how a universal media tax will convince the 100,000 to pay their, their their television license. And then if the television license is done away with and replaced, uh, will they have to be, will, will they have to, will they be back charged? Will they have to pay what they didn't pay up? It's going to be very interesting. And I would imagine there'll be a bunch of people there and no doubt backed up by a bundle of solicitors and barristers delighted to challenge what could be a very constitutionally inflamed crisis. Now, uh, what's the secret to a happy marriage? I suppose it's a question a lot of people are asking, particularly these days. Cork character and chip shop mogul Dino Cregan is still madly in love after 61 years. I'm trying to think of a good Cliff Richard song to sing to you, uh, Dino. Have you a favourite song? Well, I like a, a good few songs. I, good, I like a bit of music. I always did. Mm-hmm. What is the secret to a happy marriage? Um, like w when when you look back, uh, and if 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 I remember you telling this story, you spotted Mary from the bus, didn't you? Well, I was a bus boy at the time. I was a bus boy from the age sixteen to the age of twenty. So I used to see her running down South Main Street. She was going back to work, and I was going back to the statue hut. Yeah, and she was a. She she used to be half running to get to work for two o'clock because I was back. I wasn't on time at all, but she had to be. Right, and you described her as a lasher. Oh, she's a, she was a lasher and still is, may I say. She's reliable. <laughs> she is, and uh, like when you look back, are, are you at the happiest time of your lives together? Or? Well, we're very lucky with each other because we can do things together. And I've learned that, but we have a, we have a, a large family, and the family is the most important part 
of, of life as far as we're concerned. Each and every one of them are different, but at the same time, they're all the same. I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but we spotted you in Kinsale, actually, about a year ago, and um, I, it, it, something kind of caught me in the heart because the two of you were holding hands. I thought it was so romantic. How well, I mean, we make sure we mind each other. Like, at all age, we have to be careful. Yeah. And and when, you know, after the, 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 the as it were, the period where you, you were trying to kind of figure out where is it going to go from here? She doesn't know that I, I can see her. What happened then? Where did you meet? I, well, I used to be watching her going back to work and I knew, then I went into the Gaylord's ballroom in, in Patrick Street one Thursday night. I'll always remember it. And there she was dancing with her, with her friends. And that was the first time that I really met her face to face. After that, I made sure I saw her more often. And were you, you, is it right to think that you were throwing a few shapes that night when she, she met you? Well, I mean, I was letting her know like, that I fancied her. Right. And did she, did she get the message straight away? Well, she didn't get the message straight away, but she was coming to a dance hall. I lived in Benham Road, Cabral Leary's Hall. It used to be on in the Wednesday night that time. And I used to walk the dog late at night, and I made sure I waited outside the door for her to come out, and I'd go walking with the dog. Right. So I used to walk her down home then. Wonderful. And That's how it started. Was it the Arcadia that the two of you danced in? Uh, well, the Arcadia was the best. I mean, we got the best of the... Of the, of the the, the show bands in the arcade, myself and Mary. I mean, the Clipper Carlton's were something else. A lot of people my age would, would remember them now. They were brilliant. They were, they were from the north, but what a, what a band. And the, all the show bands then were coming to Cork. And Joe Mack, of course, and the Dixon Anders were something else. Mm. Joe is still going strong. Joe's 87. He is indeed. Yeah. I mean, people should listen to where Joe is because he's still performing and he's always, he's 80 had the same as myself. And you'll be surprised what, what kind of numbers he have. He's something else, John Actors. Yeah, I've bumped into him doing the sound check there um, on a Sunday if I'm in walking around town himself and Leo. And yeah. they're, two, they're like two young fellas, a bit like yourself. Oh, they are, yeah, they love it. Yeah. But you, you need people like that. It's, it's very important. And it's very important that we admire our other one because we had some great entertainers. Mm. How much has life changed from your perspective, Dino? Oh, it's different now. It's different. Yeah. It's it's more speedy. It's more rush. In our time, we had very little, but we had an awful lot at the same time because we had my each other and we made sure we had a great respect for each other. Which one of you wears the trousers? Mary, you can tell, well able to tell me what to do, especially in the house. And she's in charge there. Whatever she says goes. But I was never stopped from doing what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed living immensely. Thanks to Mary and the gang. Mm-hmm. You think Cork City has lost its heart, don't you? Well, I mean, Cork City is not as good as it used to be. And we want to make sure that we don't let people... Under, underrated. We want to make sure make it a place to be and it must always be a place to be. And remind me of some of the great characters that you remember and no, and no doubt met down through the years. I met some great people. In poli- I was in politics for over 30 odd years and I had every second of and I got the, the full help of Mary to make, make sure we do what's best for Cork. And our greatest privilege 
was being lawmen and lady mirrors. That was a brilliant year. What? T- tell me a little bit about the highlights of that year. The highlights of that year was the best. The best incidents were the smaller clubs. All the small clubs deserve great credit to getting done what they got done in soccer and in GA and in rugby and in everything else. The small clubs that built up and was done by men and their wives and their families and they made sure they looked after the club. So I could be naming them for a week. And during your tenure as the Lord Mayor, was life very different? Well, I mean, it was, it, was a, it wasn't an honour, it was a great privilege. It was a privilege to be Lord Mayor of Cork because you're taking on the flag after great men and women. And I always say that. I, I admired it and I admitted it, that I enjoyed it immensely and every second was going too fast. I remember the last function I done was in Guinness House on the night that I was leaving office. I had a function at 6.30 and I was going over the office at 7.30. Were you surprised that you were chosen, do you know, for the job? Well, I was, I was a member of the Finnegate party, and I mean, I was very proud of that. And I got me told when it came, and I was very happy with it. But there were some great lawmakers before me, and great lawmakers after me. And I, 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 I always made sure that I, I in the politics of, of, of life, or what it's about, I always made sure that my city came first. I always put Cork City before everything else. Can I ask you about the 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 chips? Dino's chips are renowned. I mean, I mean, survey after survey has proved that they're the best in the country. Well, we make sure. So, I mean, I've the seven of the gang are involved in the in the, in the business, and we're very lucky that they all combine together doing different things. And Sean is in charge of the factory. And he makes sure that the best spot is always got. And we make sure the respect to where we have to go for but we'll get the best spot. And they're done it from six o'clock in the morning on for all the shops. Where did the idea come from? The idea came from I owned a pickup truck and I used to be walking with a pickup truck on my own for a few years. But I was watching Jackie Lennox's who became a great friend of mine. Jackie Lennox and his family are like my second family to me. He was very, very helpful to me when I started up. I mean, at that time we started up with nothing like we just got on with it. That's where we started it from and we walked from there. And did you actually... Did, did but you we, we, we have an old saying, and each and every one of the family have the same saying, we're only as good as our last bag of chips. <laughs> That's very true. That's true. And do you want to tell us the secret what goes into the curry sauce? It's unreal, I have to say. Oh, well, the curry sauce, has the simplicity at its best. But by God, you'll be amazed the amount of people that look for curry now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, curry chips is, is a meal in itself, isn't it? That is, yes, it's well worth it. But I mean, to make sure that we do the spuds right, that's very important. That's very, very true. So, like, I'm, I, I know you've you've never sat back, you've always been busy. Have you any plans? Well, we're moving for the future. We're, we're looking forward now to the future. The next one is in Middleton. That will be starting soon, sometime next month. And that's a one-story building that will be going on in the middle of the square in Middleton. And we'll be doing other things after that, but we'd love to have a drive through on the south side of the city. We're not afraid of that. We'll be looking at that for the future, and we have our eyes open for it. That's fantastic. Great. If I was to ask you to think back 
61 years of marriage, what would be the outstanding moment, apart from the fact of meeting Mary, seeing her for the first time? The most outstanding moment, I would say, is the 50th, the 60th birthday. They were all together and we looked around and we have 15 grandchildren now, there's 30 of us all together. And she still have all our friends and she loves doing it. And we don't suffer from any illusions. We're only as good again as what we are. But that's what we look at. But we're quite happy. Very, but she's very able like. Mary is very able for me now. Mm. <laughs> well, c- congratulations and, and happy anniversary, Dino, to you and Mary. And it's been great chatting to you this morning. Well, of course, the best thing that we enjoy is every Sunday morning, we're never late up out of bed because we're listening to all these Irish. Four hours of complete great Irish music. Brilliant. You could sit down and we start dancing to parts of it when it turns on. They're a, a credit to us. And the reason they're a credit is that when they're mentioning birthdays or anniversaries, they come out personally with the names. They're in no hurry to say who they are. They're, they're really very helpful that way, and I love them for it. And please give them my compliments. I will indeed. Thanks very much. Dino, great to chat to you. Best wishes and love to Mary as well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks thanks very much for having us. And we we, we wish you so well because you see cock so well. That's the most important thing. Thank you so much. Have a great day, the two of you. Thanks, Dino. Uh, that's Dino Craig in there. Needs no introduction. And uh, as he says, he's right up there with the likes of Joe Mack and so many more as well. And of course, Derry O'Callaghan from 10 o'clock every Sunday, my uncle plays four hours of oldies in Irish and I'll pass on your best wishes Dino to Derry when I'm talking to him now Lorraine and Ross in the morning Cork's 96 FM the guys are back tomorrow from 6am tomorrow there's a very special guest joining the show can't give you any more details but it is a very special guest 4,000 euro up for grabs in the two grand minute and the lads have loads of loads more donuts to give away with crispy creme earlier this morning though Jason Murphy played the two grand minute and boy showed off his questionable impressions there's no doubt there's a man on the line here now to play the two grand minute and we had to get him on because as soon as Bucks told me what this man can do I was very impressed Oh, this is Jason Murphy and Jason Murphy is able to do a bang on impression of the connection of dial up 1990s internet go on Jason <laughs> oh, I like it. Oh, it reminds me of my childhood. This is like somebody groping RT do 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 Lorraine and Ross in the morning. Well, they're back tomorrow morning at 6am. Now, earlier on this morning, we spoke to Colin Curran, whose little boy, Sonny, sadly passed away on the 18th of October 2020 at just 25 days old. Colin Skydive, an aide of the Mercy University Hospital Foundation's Kids and Teens Appeal, takes place on what would be Sonny's third birthday, which is this Saturday, September 3rd. And he mentioned a beautiful moment when Sonny was passing and he sang You'll Never Walk Alone, surrounded by hospital staff. So we thought before we finish this morning that it would be fitting to end today's show with a few bars to pay special tribute to Sonny. When you walk It's a memory of Sonny there, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and you'll never walk alone thinking of Colin and Karen today. Today's show was edited by Emer O'Hay, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Thanks to Wayne on the desk. PJ is back tomorrow morning at nine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.